Welcome to The Creator State, where we share stories of social innovation and entrepreneurship for movers, shakers, creators, and changemakers. Each episode will celebrate success and failure, ingenuity, and the endless pursuit of knowledge. From education to implementation, join us as we explore everything in between. The Creator State. What's a good road trip without a great snack? For Eugene Kang, a road trip stop for beef jerky sparked his entrepreneurial journey to become the co-founder and CEO of Country Archer Jerky Company, a brand you might recognize from the shelves of Starbucks, Target, Whole Foods, and Costco stores across the country. Growing up working in his parents' gas station convenience stores, Eugene was familiar with popular snack options and with the hard work needed to run a thriving business. He believes Country Archer's emphasis on high-quality ingredients appeal to young consumers' demands for products that align with their values and new dietary trends. That and modern packaging and mouth-watering flavors like shiracha, hatch chili, and my favorite, mango habanero. Following a record year of growth in 2018, Country Archer was included as one of the fastest-growing private companies in the Inc. 5000 list and Eugene was named to the 2019 Forbes 30 Under 30 list in the food and drink category. Join us as we talk with Eugene Kang in this episode about seizing opportunity, creating a national brand, and where his focus lies as a visionary leader. I'm your host, Rekirby Hines. Welcome to the Creator State. Um, Eugene, I want to welcome you to the Creator State. Thanks for having um, me. Absolutely. And I want to begin by asking you kind of our, our, our broad stroke question, which is what led you to Country Archer? And of course, within that, you will let us know what Country Archer is. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start there. First of all, thanks for having me here. Um, it's good to, be, good, good to be back here at UC Riverside campus. Yeah. Uh, Country Archer is the leading gourmet producer of meat snacks. We are, you know, you can liken us to the Sam Adams of beef jerky. We produce organic, grass-fed, high-quality protein snacks, pre- predominantly in the uh, meat snack category. We came across this business about uh, eight years ago. Uh, my partner and I, we took a road trip up to Grand Canyon, and we had stopped by this tiny little uh, I don't know, roadside stand, and it, we had uh, picked up the uh, bag of jerky. We we're all SoCal natives here, so on the way up to um, Las Vegas, you know, you stop at Alien Jerky or you stop at any of these sort of roadside stands that says fresh jerky on a billboard, and you pick up a bag, and it's like a plastic bag with like a sticker label s- slapped on it. And we were eating it, and I just, in the car, I just immediately fell in love, right? Road trips and jerky, it just kind of goes hand in hand, it's anonymous. And, you know, upon reading the ingredients, we found out there was no preservatives in this. Yeah. And so I, I remember just asking the owner of the roadside saying, hey, you know, are you making this in the back shop there? And, and they were like, well, and actually we're not. We're, we're buying it from this small little producer in Grand Terrace. Huh. And I go, oh, okay. So we, we tracked down the owner, and uh, it turns out he's got this tiny little commercial kitchen right there off Van Buren Street and off the 215 there in uh, uh, on Grand Terrace. And... He was essentially a butcher by trade, Italian gentleman, pushing 80 years old. Um, if you wanted to call it Kirby's Fresh Jerky and yeah. you wanted to open up your little business, um, you would just go to him and say, hey, can I buy jerky from you and put it under my brand? And that's all this gentleman was doing. That's, that's all he did all day long, hand slicing it, hand marinating, using all real ingredients, 
uh, ahead of its time in terms of um, food. We we came across him. Uh, we, we we tracked him down, and we we said, "Hey, what's what's your succession plan? What's your what's your what's the big vision here for the for the business?" And he's like, "I'm I'm not really doing it for money. I'm doing it for a labor of love. Wow. Uh, I love what I do. Um, I'm a butcher by trade." And so we just kind of the light bulb just kind of went off, and we said, "You know, this is." This is kind of cool. We really can be the craft beer of meat snacks, right? Hangar 24 had just really started bursting through the seams uh, from the craft beer scene. And no one really was kind of owning the IE when it came to craft jerky. So we quickly bought him out in 2011 and really just started uh, growing the business from there. Like, you know, I keep trying to get to those moments, that moment. And a lot of times it's not a moment. So I became a playwright right here on this campus because I, I had written a short skit and I was doing it at the University Theater. Um, and I heard the audience react to something that I had written at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I realized this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Right. And it was, it was one of those moments that I thought, okay, I don't, and I didn't know what the trajectory, I didn't know, what the, you know, I didn't know yeah. coming back and t- teaching and doing all these things. But it was, it was that thing and it sounds like there was the same instinct where, you, you know, you guys are like, we, this thing should, you know. Yeah. I mean, we went in with, look, we're not trying to change up anything radically what you're doing today. We just think that there's a lot of opportunity left on the table. That's how, like, that's like a natural correction in itself in the business world. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. My parents are immigrants that came here. They've got some great retail businesses. And it's, it would make a great living for someone. And, and I, I just was never interested in taking over my family's retail business. For some reason, it just it didn't excite me. And they don't have a plan, right? I mean, like, yeah, I mean, they all like to sit here and they'll say, yeah, I want to sell it. But who that next person's going to be, we don't know. And it could be another wave of immigrants that just yeah. come in yeah. that take that business and their kids could have a different outlook on life. And so I just think that in general, in businesses in particular, there's a – there's a natural correction that just kind of help happens in and of itself. That Charlie didn't have a plan, but I don't think he intended to have one. He just he just woke up every morning and just go open up the shop, took fresh delivery of beef, and made this product. And you know, I think one of his sons was in the Air Force, other kids were doing their own thing. And so him as a parent is like, I'm not gonna enforce them to do this. And likewise, like my parents, my parents weren't saying, Hey, no, like just come run the shop. You know, why what, what do you want to do this? No, like they were like, Okay, like. You got your thing. So, I mean, you, 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 the way you, you tell the story is, is pretty simple and straightforward, but tell me about when you knew this was something that you wanted to pursue. I mean, yes, you, you, you know, you, you tasted it, you're like, this is, this is really dope, like, I, I, I appreciate it. But, but was there moment or moments when you, when you thought, this is something that um, I want to pursue along with my partner? Yeah, I mean, it first started with the product, and it always starts with the product. The product has to be good. And when we tried the product initially from that roadside stand, we thought, this is, this is best in class, and there's nothing like this. Nice, yeah. And when we think about the, the genesis of the business, all these little roadside stands were, their claim to fame was this product. So if you go up to Big Bear, you stop by Green Spot. Yeah. You, know, you always pick up you know, some jerky from, the, from the, that deli counter. This gentleman was making it for Green Spot. So wow. I knew it had its own cult-like following, but it never really had the power of brand. It was just kind of like a we call it we used to joke around it was like the best kept secret yeah in yeah. jerky and so 
I come from a family of entrepreneurs. My family were immigrants, and they owned convenience stores all throughout Southern California. So I kind of grew up in the the convenience store business, growing, you know, stock in the stores, and I knew the power of brands and what brands were doing. Whether it was Vitamin Water coming out or Pop Chips, et cetera. So there was all these new brands that were disrupting their respective categories, and no one was really disrupting jerky. Wow. And you think back to when I was stocking the stores and. The, the jerky that we knew and we grew up with was that gas station, truck stop jerky that was probably really bad for you, <laughs> high in sodium and, 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 and preservatives and MSG. We, this was completely counter to that. And that along with I saw there was a movement towards better for you food yes, and, and wellness and transparency. So we just said, this is it. This is what I wanted to do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's not so simplistic as – you, you, you drive and you say, okay, I want to buy this company. It, it was a combination of things. But just the, the timing of trying that product versus what was in the market, it, the stars just aligned. And, and also, to that point, going to meet the owner, and sure enough, he's 80 years old. His right. kids don't want to take over the business. No succession plan. So you're like, all right, there's a stars just aligned here. We got to pursue this. Thing. When you talk about timing also, when you – uh, made this decision and decided to go into business. Education had a role to play in this. Talk about what role education or educational decisions yeah. served in you moving the business forward. Yeah, I, I feel like I should like kind of put a disclaimer, a contextual, <laughs> uh, give some context here. I, I, I'm a college dropout, by the way, and I'm not advocating to, to drop out of college by any means to any of the listeners out there, but. Uh, the one thing I would say that correlates between what I do in the business and education, I would say it, it ties back to leadership yes. and, and, and sort of community. Businesses, in, especially in my position where we are today in our organization, like I am not, I always say this, like I am not the numbers guy. I am not the marketing genius. I am not the sales guy. Like I've got experts in every department that have over 10, 15 years of experience in yeah. their respective fields. I just, more or less, I'm kind of like the orchestrator. Like, I've, yep. I'm the conductor. I just make sure everyone's humming along and everyone's yeah. working together and everyone's kind of beating the same path. Because yeah. at the end of the day, like, when you're an expert in your individual field, which we need that, the yeah. world needs that, they sometimes lack the sort of uh, looking at the playing field, right? Okay. Tom Brady is the best quarterback, but he's not going to drop all the plays. And so you need a head coach and you need a general manager. And so... I always tell people, like, my role is general manager, coach. Like, I am nothing more. There's no rocket science behind it. No, it's, it's definitely a conductor role for me, and, 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 and that's the thing that I keep telling entrepreneurs all the time, just going full circle, is, like, you always got to remember that you cannot be the smartest person in the room. You have to surround yourself with good leaders, and you as their leader have to just, you know, be able to galvanize. You have to be empathetic. You have to really learn. You can't, it takes a village to really do what I do or what this company does. Yes. And I think back to not so much the actual contextual education, but the, the group studies, the, the group meetings and, and, and group projects and working together and the guys who step up say, hey, listen, let's, I, I might not be the best at this, but I'm going to try to galvanize and, and herd people together to kind of move, move that um, sort of agenda along. And I think that's, that's the one thing I can correlate back. So, so specifically, how much did you know about jerky None. before? And then what was your <laughs> process for getting to the place you are now where, you know, th that, once again, that, that educational 
uh, trajectory or that journey. Yeah, yeah. No, I had no no pretext or pre-context knowledge of jerky or meat snacks. Um, you know, what we did know was this gentleman is an expert at what he does. Yeah. And if you kind of full circle this back to education, you know, we we kind of have to sit and listen and soak up knowledge from these professors or people that have sort of background knowledge of these particular matters. And that's exactly what we did. I didn't come in to Country Archer first thing day one and tell Charlie, who was the original founder, say, hey, listen, I'm going to do this light years better. No, we, we, we soaked it up for a whole year. I mean, I was in the commercial kitchen with him every morning, um, lifting boxes, looking at meat, diff- different cuts of meat, different marinades, and just kind of soaked up the artisanal side of it. Because that's... wow. That was the, the, the key to this, to scale, was this is a small regional thing, and we needed to make this national. But first and foremost, we need to understand the, the process and how you make this. So, so in, in, in looking at the, the dual functions that you needed to serve, and, and just you know, reading up a little bit, you, you, you look at this, uh, this parallel journey of the creation of the product and the marketing or, or, you know, can you talk a little bit about that process? Once again, at the beginning, realizing, hey, wait a minute, this is something that can possibly go national. This is something that can be a lot more than what it is. We want to make sure that we keep the product a certain way, but also we need to put it, get it out into the world, let the world know that it exists. What was that process for you? You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, we really had to reverse engineer this, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. The the brand was already existing, but it was n- there was zero to no zero to none uh, un- unaided awareness is what we like to call it. So you know we the Country Archer name was just a a, a, a brand that was on the side of a concrete building. It was nothing more than that. And so you think just contextually, what does that mean from a brand, and how does this tie into the actual product? When we created the brand, we really had to create it based on the fact that this is a story that we need to highlight. Not this this 80-year-old Italian gentleman who's been making it for this for 30-plus years. We need to highlight the heritage side of it, but we also want to be this modern brand. So even the branding and the design elements incorporate that, where, you know, like on the front of the logo, you, it says established 1977, but yet the packaging and the branding looks modern and hip. Yeah. And so there are elements of trying to keep with the nostalgia and the heritage of it, but yet the branding and the, and the marketing is trying to be more sort of, um, it's, in, it's in, encompassing more the new consumers and, and, and talking about jerky in a more gourmet sense. Was there a moment or was there a period of time when you thought, okay, this thing is going to do what, what I thought it was going to do when we started? It's hard to see that in the beginning, obviously, because yes. you, you, you go in, I think this is way best way to describe it. You, you, you go in thinking this is going to be the product and you know what you're doing and you start out day one and you realize you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> and quickly afterwards, you find out, you know, within the first couple of years, okay, uh, there's so much of this industry and business that just keeps unraveling in itself. Yeah. And I would say around, you know, we bought the business 2011, 2014 is when we first launched into a major retailer, when we actually got traction. Or an actual major retailer said, yeah, well, we'll take that brand on and we'll, we'll put it in our stores. And you start seeing that first purchase order and you're just going like, whoa, okay. <laughs> like, did we just kind of like get lucky here? Did we stumble upon something? And 
you just kind of run with it at that point. Yeah. So I think it's it, there's a little bit of that saying, you know, fake it till you make it. And yes. I, I was a little bit, I was kind of doing that, right? For from 2011, 2014, it was like fake it till I make it. I was telling people, oh yeah, we're we're gonna be the Sam Adams jerky, but secret, I mean, internally behind the closed doors, like we didn't know what we were doing. We're just like, I'm going up driving my parents' car, you know, not paying ourselves and hitting up every store I can along the street trying to deliver jerky, but that wasn't scalable and that wasn't gonna get us where we wanted to. And then it wasn't until we got our first big big, big break in 2014 and uh, Sprouts actually uh, brought on the, the product and it just took off from there. And part of the journey that we didn't talk about, um, going back a little, a little bit, was that um, there was an investment made by your parents. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> so, you know, I kind of gave the context that I dropped out of school. I, you know, I got the acceptance to UC Riverside, and before I took on the this this path, I kind of looked at it in a nutshell, and I said, you know, I really don't know if, if this is what I want to do, and I really see an opportunity here, and I see a vision. Uh, I actually went to my parents, and I, I jokingly said, hey, um, you can you can invest me invest in me to go to school, but I don't think you're going to get ROI on that. <laughs> <laughs> and they thought they actually I'll be honest, they kind of looked at me. Uh, half, half, half like they wanted to kill me, and the half kind of like, yeah, he's real, he's right, <laughs> he, this is true. We know our son better than than he knows himself, and it's probably a bad ROI. Wow. And so, I said, there's an opportunity for this business, and my partner and I, we really believe in this. Can you invest in me on this? Because I need to come up with the cash on my end. I don't have anything to my name. And then they said, okay, we'll take a flyer. Um, it's funny. There's a there's like a fun, funny sidebar anecdote on that. Years later, we took on our first private equity capital raise um, from a great growth capital out of L.A. And I remember when I went to my dad. It was a it was a five million dollar check we got from a growth capital from our from our investors. And I said, Hey, I got I got the money. I can pay you back now. It was you know, a couple hundred grand. And my dad's like, Wait, you telling me these guys invested how much money in your business? And your your business is worth now what? And he goes. <laughs> Uh, convert that over to equity. I don't want the cash. I said, <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll do that too. Yes. Yeah. No. That's 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 very cool. And and I mean, when you you know you you started off earlier saying you know I, I'm a college dropout, but but you also talked about your education, the ongoing education, clearly coming from from your ability to study the things you needed to study, but also coming from your parents, it seems, who you know. Apparently, your dad had you know a little bit of insight, yeah, uh, with that investment, yeah. Um, so I want to ask you because you you alluded to a little bit about uh, j- just fake it till you make it and, and and trying different things. Can you mention or talk about any failures or mistakes or however you perceive those setbacks that um, that happened during this process and how did you use those uh, to move forward? Yeah, I mean. Failure is, is it's a natural occurring event, especially in the entrepreneurial path. Um, and I think the one thing you have to be cognizant of is, is never to take these things too personal. Yeah. Um, you have to really take a step back and, and not look at things in a vacuum and go, okay, wh- where did that mistake come from and, and how do I learn from that future? And I think especially in the consumer goods, uh, consumer product industry, a lot of entrepreneurs think they're the next Steve Jobs, right? So you hit a couple of good, good success runs and you just think, okay, I know it all. Yeah. And after that, product development just becomes sort of part of your hubris. And you think, okay, anything I create or innovate is just going to just kill it at retail or kill it at the stores or consumers will flock to it. And 
we've had a couple of we took a couple of L's, you know, in, in beginning years when we we launched a couple of products that didn't work. Yeah. And, for example. Uh, well, for example, is we we launched um, uh, for we launched a couple of flavors that just didn't resonate. You <laughs> yeah. know, we thought we wanted to we wanted to be kind of cool with the the flavor profiles a little bit too, right? Yeah. And what we kind of find out too is some of the flavor profiles it doesn't hit critical mass. It doesn't hit mass scale, right? At the end of the day, consumers know original, they know teriyaki, they know pepper. This is what they grew up with. So what we decided to do is instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, we took what was existing and we just made it better. So if you took our original beef jerky and compared it to the original beef jerky you'll find at a gas station, you know we have over 60% of our ingredients are organic. We use grass-fed beef. We use all these premium ingredients, but yeah. it's still the same flavor. So... Rather than come out with some kooky flavor that may not resonate in the mass market, we decided to just take what's working but make it better. And yeah. so that's a good example of a, of a, of a product uh, that we, you know, product sort of loss that we, we took in the early years. Yeah. Um, interesting. Interesting. Um, so you, you, you're listed in Forbes uh, 30 under 30. And, um, and, now you are viewed as someone who is successful and from whom I'm sure uh, folks are, are looking for advice and guidance. What have you learned um, about success from others, um, anyone specifically? What have you learned? Yeah, uh, the, the word success is, is so subjective. And, I, and, I, and I, I really try to take a step back because – Yes, you know, we have had some great success here at Country Archer, um, whether it was my personal accolade or whether it's the company's achievement. But, you know, we really, you know, I, I try to try to take a step back and ask myself, you know, how do we get here? And one of the things that I do tell people, a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs who want to get into the food and beverage space in particular, is how did you do it? And, and I got to sometimes be honest, and luck has and good fortune and good timing has a lot to do with it. Yeah. You know, when Starbucks gave us a call, in 2016 and said, hey, we're kind of thinking about exploring jerky, you know, do you think you can kind of provide us some, some samples of your product and see how, how it performs? I mean, initially I thought, you know, coffee and jerky, it's not going to go well, but, you know, how do you say no to something like that? You, right. you, you do your best to execute about getting product out to their stores, and it's a small test. Like, I think it was 40 stores. Yeah. But... What quickly came after that was it just did so well for them that they were like, all right, we're going to now put you in like 2,000 stores. And we're like, I mean, how do, you, how do you predict something like that? You can't plan for success in that way. And so what I try to tell entrepreneurs a lot of times is it's not so much that it's purely luck-driven, that, it's, that I believe that everyone has opportunities that come their way. It's really up to you to decide whether or not this is an opportunity you can seize on and move and quickly uh, recognize that it's an opportunity. Because... I firmly believe everyone's going to get an opportunity once in a while in their lifetime. Wow. And whether you can um, differentiate and really recognize that this is an opportunity, i got to move on this, and i got to you know, take the bull by the horns, that's on you. And that's to me, is the, the beauty of all this is, to, I was saying earlier about timing and fortune and, 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 yeah. and, 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 and being blessed from that perspective, I, don't, I think fortune has, and good timing has a lot to do with it, but it also putting yourself in these, to, to increase the probability to have good fortune come your way right. or good timing come your way is also a thing, right? Like Starbucks would never have called us had we not put together an awesome pot package, an awesome product out there in retail already. It's not like they just called out of the blue. They called because they saw it in the stores. They were like, this is pretty cool. 
We're exploring jerky anyway. Let's give them a call. And so that, that component we can't control. But the component we did control was we put a kick-ass product out there. We put it out in the market as much as we could. Yeah. And it just caught the eye of, an, uh, the, the, of the Starbucks brass, right? So that's kind of how we look at it. Being in, in, in the space, I guess, with the right mindset to make things yeah. come to fruition. I think that's the one thing that, you know, I, I actually take some time now every week to, to talk to fellow entrepreneurs that are, whether it's my space or different, different sectors. And one of the, the correlating lines is, and I see this now, is like there are entrepreneurs that have sold their companies for hundreds of millions of dollars and are really successful. And it's all great. Yeah. But the one thing that I, and I'm a student of the game, I, I, I see this as like they go into the next thing, the next venture, and they think, you know, they got this hubris now, like I've done it. Yeah. I've crushed it. I can do it again. I'm the smartest guy in the room. And a lot of times those second ventures fail. And that and I think there's a correlating line of self awareness. Wow. And really coming in with the right with the right attitude of like, you know, really stay humble. Yeah. I mean truly stay humble no matter what. Because I know, like, you know, the whole accolades, like, Forbes 30 and the, <laughs> yes. the money we've well, I saw your face when it, I said and, that. And, and you were it, like. It's <laughs> tough, man, because, like, I, 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 never, I never want those ideas to creep into my head where you just think to yourself, like, you're never, you're never wrong. You know, I've always prided myself on this. And, and I, I know I jokingly tell myself, tell people that I'm a college dropout, but, like, there's no way I can have that attitude. Like, my COO is a pen guy, you pen guy. I mean, yeah. wow. if I had that attitude of, oh, yeah, college is important then there's no way I could scale the company that we did today. Because right. everyone in our organization has come from great educational backgrounds. And so I like to always tell people, like, yeah, I dropped out, but that's not for everyone. Like, you've got to be very self-aware to know, like, what your weaknesses and what your strengths. Yeah. And never be the smartest person in the room, because you're probably hanging out in the wrong room then. <laughs> right? Now, let's get into the creator's state of mind. In each episode, we ask our guests to share what's been on their minds, something they can't stop thinking about, a new challenge they're facing, or what's inspired them into action recently. We call it the creator state of mind. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really inspiring me lately is as we continue to scale our business and our operation, you know, we're over 130 employees now, and we're really, you know, we're in over 25,000 retailers in the, in the country, and we really are growing this organization. One of the things that's inspired me is, is how can I be a better leader in the community? You know, I've, you know, I've been fortunate to, to scale this business with some great people. And as we look over the next couple of years, I'd like to figure out a kind of, I don't want to say necessarily give back to community, but how do I foster a community longer term? Because I've started to realize that whether it's the Chobani founder or Cliff Bar or some of these really great stalwart brands that have really trailblazed for entrepreneurs to enter this space. They've done some amazing things with their company and their culture and their employees. And I just think, you know, that's something that we, we think about and we challenge ourselves internally about how do we, how do we make a better culture long term? Because we got a great product. we got a great brand. It's resonating with the consumers. We're getting distribution. We're growing our revenue off the charts. But that, to be honest, that doesn't that doesn't keep me up, or that doesn't wake me up in the morning, and get me energized. Now I, it's it's more than that. It's we got a great organization that are doing their thing. But for me as a leader now, I'm I'm trying to figure out like, okay, how do we how do we sort of install some of these things that some of the great leaders before us have done now? Whether it's um, you know I've just read a great story the other day where Gary Erickson at Cliff Bar is um, they put this great maternity leave package now at their company, which. 
you know, I'll be honest, like in the early stage, it's hard to incorporate something like that because you're growing like crazy and everyone's got to, you know, put sort of all hands on deck. But over time, as we scale our business and operation, can we uh, can we give ourselves permission to introduce something like that to our company? So these are things that are challenging me long term. That's very cool. That And, and this community where you are is out here in the Inland Empire is in San Bernardino. Um, and so this is, you know, for me as a resident of this region, it's, it's great to hear that kind of um, conversation and thoughtfulness going into um, what this space, what the community uh, can become and can be. No, absolutely. I mean, look, there, I won't lie to you, there was ideas where we had, a, when we took a certain scale where we were like, does this even make sense to stay here in San Bernardino? Should we go to Dallas or should we go to Austin or, or Colorado? But, you know, first and foremost, there's still a lot of talent in SoCal in general. And SoCal is just a beast, right? You got great talent out of Orange County that, you know, like our COO is an Irvine guy, but he come out every day. And that's something that we've just always mandated from the very beginning was this is home camp and this is what it's going to be. That's, but and, that's, and, it's a great perspective. Though, yeah, and look, like, like, I live in L.A., so to each is their own, right? Yeah, so, I, yeah. I mean, I am not one to ever tell someone how to live their life personally, especially in our company. But yeah. I know that one thing is for sure is that, you know, our organization is over 130 people and there's, there's real people making this product. Yeah. And we felt like this was going to be home camp for us, and that's just kind of, you know, that's our thing. But And I think a lot of it has to do with influence because you think back to – when we um, when we launched this brand, there were some great brands coming out of Inland Empire, like Hangar 24, for example. Yeah. And we thought, well, you don't have to be stone brewing out of San Diego to succeed in craft beer. Right. Hangar 24 is evident of that. Yeah. And so we almost kind of said, we could do the same thing. We don't have to be like in L.A. or Boulder, Colorado or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. So for us, that, that's kind of – it was also influence-driven too, right? It is always a valuable learning opportunity to take time to reflect. At the end of each interview, we like to ask our guests this. In hindsight, what is something you wish you would have known when you were starting out? How much capital is really needed to grow? You know, I would say that the one thing that I think everyone kind of knows that. Yeah. But I think going into it, capital is is the oxygen for companies, especially startups. Yeah. And we live in a world where funding is widely available. There's a lot of private equities and venture capitals chasing for the next new thing. But I would caution any aspiring entrepreneurs out there is that uh, really take a hard look at your capital needs and what, what you think you want to raise and, and how much you really need for the future for, for growth. I mean, I'm talking true growth. Yeah. And, and that that's really important. When we, when we were able to book you and, and you know looking at what you've done and uh, where you are, it's it's really exciting to kind of to see someone who uh, is doing something that, for me as as an artist, you know, as a playwright, as someone involved in theaters, is something so uh, foreign to kind of those basic spaces where I exist. But once again, still seeing and hearing the types of things that it takes creatively to make these things happen. So I truly appreciate your time. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Our next episode features New York Times bestselling author Fatima Farheen Mirza, who found her passion for writing in a classroom at UC Riverside. Her debut novel, A Place for Us, was the first release from Sarah Jessica Parker's publishing imprint and was named one of the best books of 2018 by The Washington Post, NPR, and People magazine. Thanks for listening. 
Find more information about our guests at creatorstate.com. Do you know someone creating something great? Send us what you're creating for a chance to be featured in an upcoming episode. Write to us at creatorstate at ucr.edu. There's a team creating this podcast. Help us by subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen. And while you are there, leave us a review. Our producer for this show is Jennifer Merritt, with audio and editing by Chan Moon and Kevin Williams. Digital strategy by Kelly McGrail and Madeline Adamo. Designed by Chrissy Danforth, Denise Wolf, Brad Rowe, and creative director Luis Sands. Special thanks to Christy Zwicky and Jessica Weber. This show is brought to you by the University of California, Riverside. I'm your host, Rekirby Hines. Thanks for joining us in the creator state. Man, that crushed red pepper is good. This is actually good. This one, I like this one. For real. <laughs> <laughs>